You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. This podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast where we host in-depth conversation about policy and issues affecting my lecture of Goldstein and wider Australia. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast is being recorded, the Bunwarang and Bunurang peoples of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by Sam Moston AO. Sam is a businesswoman and sustainability advisor with an impressive history of executive and governance roles across business, sport, mental health, equality, climate change, the arts, policy and the not-for-profit sector. She was the first female AFL commissioner and was recently appointed as the chair of Beyond Blue. Since its establishment at the end of 2022, Sam has spearheaded the Women's Economic Equality Task Force providing advice to the federal government through its 10-year plan to unleash the full capacity and contribution of women to the Australian economy. Bring it on. She was also the first ever guest to come on this podcast right back at the beginning of my campaign for election, so we're very lucky to have her on for a second time. Hi, Sam. Hi, Zoe. It's just lovely to be joining you. I hadn't realised I was the first um, person on your podcast. It's nice to be with you again and um, nice to be joining you from the very hot lands today of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney. Indeed, and it's lovely to have you a lot of water under the bridge uh, in the intervening period. Now, I'm very keen to get into the nuts and bolts of the wheat report and also uh, from from the perspectives of an MP that um, is working very actively in this area of uh, getting us to gender equality, just what the levers are that we can and need to pull. Just at the beginning, um, can you give us a snapshot of where you would say Australia is currently in terms of women's economic participation, security and equality? Thanks, Zoe. And I know you've been a, a stalwart on this at work as well, not just in your electorate, but over a long period of time and all the things that you've done. And I know you know this data really well. I think we're a conundrum, Australia, because we produce some of the most educated women in the world. We rank at the top of the World Economic Forum's ranking of education for women, and um, that's both formal education and skills and training. So we're a highly educated nation for women, and we give um, girls, young women, a real sense that they can do anything. We, we talk about that a lot, about the, the potential of women and girls. And we feel like a country that should be able to do lots uh, for women and utilise that full capacity of women across our communities and in our, into our economy. But the truth of the matter is that um, the best way I can put it is that we squander that great national asset in a number of ways. We um, have some of the worst economic participation rates in that same World Economic Forum assessment about how we convert that education into uh, women's capacity to be part of the economy in a meaningful way. We used to be quite low also on political engagement, but um, given the work that you've done and many other women who've actually joined our parliament, we've seen a big rise in women in, involved in political and policy engagement. So we've we've built up a little bit more of our credit there. But women in the economy in Australia really do fare very poorly. There's a number of drivers for that. We've got probably the highest gendered segregated and segmented workforce 
um, almost in the world. So what that really means is we've got this acceptance that women do certain jobs and men do certain jobs. And so 75% of all part-time jobs in Australia are held by a woman and almost 90% of all the care sector jobs, including education, but also into the broader care sector in its breadth, uh, are held by women. And we know that they are notoriously underpaid jobs. I know you did a big review into women who were holding their families together and managing household budgets and having to piece together part-time jobs just to get by. And that is a, that's something that's happening all over the country. So we've kind of taken advantage of this incredibly skilled group of women. We've put them into a position where we don't actually have the same opportunities for women as men. We've got very comfortable with these gendered norms about where we are in the economy. We have a significant set of cultural norms about how we treat women and anyone who's different, really. But from the women's perspective, very high rates of discrimination, um, high rates of domestic and family and sexual violence, high rates of discrimination in the workplace and even all the way through to physical abuse or, or assault. So, you know, that, it's a pretty complex story. And when, when, when we formed the task force and first started meeting with women around the country from every kind of background, the thing that really jumped out to me and the task force members was women in, in Australia felt that they just weren't being seen and heard about what their expectations about their role in their economy and our society is and a real lack of understanding as to what the big barriers are to our progress, and but just how much we learned over COVID about the extent to which we rely on women to hold our communities together. So it's a, it's a really complex story, but one that we can actually fix if there is a degree of courage um, and, uh, I guess, uh, common sense around how we address some of these big systemic issues. I was having a conversation recently with my now 15-year-old daughter trying to explain to her the systemic barriers that are intrinsic in Australia that may affect her. And it was quite interesting having that conversation with a 15-year-old girl, given in her mind the level of gender equality that she experiences and the opportunities that are unfolding in front of her. How would you explain to a girl of that age what she's likely to come up against in terms of the bugs in the system, if I can call them that, that will hold her back through no fault of her own? It's a really great question and I think it's one of the best ways to think about what's really going on here and what those barriers are, how we can explain them to a, a young woman or indeed a young man so that a generation can come through and think a bit differently about why these things have persisted um, I have a 24-year-old daughter and I've had very similar conversations with her through her teenage years at a school where she was told girls could do anything, where she did very, very well in her HSC here in New South Wales, um, so the equivalent of a Year 12 certificate. But from the time she left high school, went to university and, and has, has entered the labour market and as a young woman ex exploring the world, she's come across the early stages of those systemic barriers as I kind of predicted she would, um, and we've had long discussions about this and we've also had those conversations with my nephews who are around about the same age and trying to unpack what this is. And what I've always said to her, and I'm sure you said to your daughter, is um, you're given a sense of your pop your possibility and everything about what your education and your opportunities, could where they could take you. But there's very little discussion early on in our education system around, first of all, how girls and boys, men and women, participate in different ways across the life course 
of family life and choices that are made about who you have, who you become partnered with, whether you have children, the careers you choose, and how far back you've got to go to work out when there might have been just some very basic gendered norms about what air field of endeavour you might go into. So we know that this this happened to my daughter that when you're by, if, if a girl by grade five doesn't really have confidence in numbers, it's almost impossible for her to gain that confidence in numbers once she goes into high school and think about a career that involves maths, numbers, and systems that actually talk about numbers a lot. And that's just about confidence. That's not because girls and boys can't understand numbers in the same way. It's a confidence issue in the same way that I'm not sure we do it as much nowadays, but certainly when I was growing up, you know, girls were taught how to save and be household, to take care of the household, be safe. And boys would kind of, young men were taught how to invest and take a few risks with your money to make more money. So these things that happen very early in life, um, I think still impact a lot of young women and young men. So we, I went to a graduation the other day at Swinburne University for a friend who um, just, just got her degree. And I, it was along the same day as the nursing degree was being conferred. And I think there were about 110 graduates in nursing and there was only one man one young man, the rest were all women. Very diverse group of women from all over the world and, and all over the country. But I sat there thinking, here we go again. This is, if we talk about the care sector, there's a group, there's a cohort of women going into um, a largely lower paid sector as nurses, clearly decided to be nurses at some point in their education in a way that men did not. So men were graduating in engineering degrees and in, um, in computing science and, um, and finance. And so you see this separation very early, and once you're on that track, very hard to make these big jumps back across to see where you might actually have a career that you didn't expect in space and technology or finance or real estate or the income-producing sectors that we know um, men do very well in, and, and that's where we set up a number of barriers. So that, that's the kind of that's the career trajectory, the kind of expectations, and why I think so much work is done for women and girls in STEM, uh, women in getting into police force, into firefighting, into stevedore. You know, we, we see a lot of attempts to do that, but something happens very early on in Australia about boys and girls and, and their, their aspirations. But then when they're out there in the workforce, I think there's, there's the big systemic things are what happens when you decide to have a family? So whose responsibility is it to take leave, to give up work, to pay for childcare? Historically, we still do this even with couples who I, I would have thought would discuss this as a couple we typically say that's that's the woman's salary. That's if the woman's going to go back to work part time, she'll be bearing the cost of the childcare or any other support for the family, not the household income being split to work that out. Women take these this period of leave of around about five years, and we know that that five years of parental leave has historically been called the motherhood trap, and you know through the parenthood trap that that period of time taken out to have children and not staying attached to the labour force, not staying attached to career development not staying attached to your superannuation savings, sets up over the course of the rest of her life a disadvantage and a set of circumstances that, from which she very rarely gets to recover. There are exceptions, but we, we know from the, the data that she ends up with a much lower income over time, much lower superannuation balances. She never really gets back on track with the career in the way that her partner or the men she was working with do. And, and this is an argument for women not becoming mothers and wanting to be full-time mothers. This is a This is a discussion around the general tenor of who we expect to do that work and what the penalty is that they pay. And so few men in Australia take a similar amount of time out to be an active parent. Um, so we don't have a similar set of experiences of men that then they look back over their life course to say, gee, I, that five years really put me back. 
They might take some leave when, when a child is born. They might take a bit of study leave. But typically in Australia, we're nothing like the Scandinavian countries where men and women think of parenting and taking leave as the most normal thing and do it um, in combination. And so these are, these are the big systemic barriers. And then, of course, there's just the professions that women go into are, are chronically underpaid and undervalued. That's why we're, we're talking a lot about the care sector and trying to list those wages. And, um, and once women are in those professions, they very rarely get to swap out and become get into other professions, or even in the profession they're in. We know with, with the heavily women-dominated care professions, most of those care professions are actually run by the senior management of those professions are men. So the women don't even get the benefit of getting up through middle management and becoming chief executives on the boards of and leading those sectors. They're typically men again. So, so again, there are these systemic barriers. And, and that's before I get into some of the behavioural issues around how we typically think about women um, in the workplace and the issues that women face around discrimination or just not being believed. Um, and that's, a, that's again, a quite peculiarly Australian phenomenon of these gendered norms, which um, I think we have to work really carefully with to, to bring men along so we don't encourage backlash as we talk about what could be good for women. There's lots of numbers around about the economic potential and benefit of empowering women. Firstly, how do we shift the conversation from a cost to a benefit conversation in regard to, uh, well, I don't want to say women's policy because, of course, it's policy that affects everyone, but it tends to be sort of boxed as women's policy. And also, is that lack of recognition or sort of inability to think about the benefit rather than the cost, again, a peculiarly Australian phenomenon, or is that something that we see across other Western democracies? I I think this is at the heart of our issue here, about the way we talk about investing in women and the return we would we would get as a nation rather than constantly thinking about women's policy as being costly or too expensive. And in fact, the day I delivered the report to the minister, I did a panel session and there was an economist, a man economist on the panel who said, look, everything you're saying is making perfect sense, makes perfect sense economically, we should do it. We just can't afford it. It's too expensive. It's a big, big cost. And, and I, my response was, hang on. <laughs> We've just agreed that it's economically responsible, it's an investment, it pays back very quickly, um, apart from all the other things it's doing around lifting women's spirits and capacity and engagement. Um, but, but he went straight to, we can't afford, at this time in the economy, we can't afford it, it's a cost. And I don't think we treat any other infrastructure investment, physical infrastructure investment, the way we treat women and investment in the future. So we have no problem with Snowy 2, we have no problem with our West Connects, we talk about these big infrastructure projects having an investment and a return over time. But when we get to the human capital of women, suddenly we're back to social policy costs and it's too hard, we can't afford it. And I think one of the great breakthroughs, um, in addition to there being so many women like you in the parliament, Zoe, normalising the discussion about policy as it affects all of us and communities and what we could be doing better that would actually lift women's participation as an economic uplift. So in addition to that, having a Minister for Women for the first time who's also the Minister for Finance and the Minister for the Australian Public Service and a member of the Expenditure Review Committee of Cabinet, all of a sudden you had the Minister for Women who was sitting right there in the centre of the budget process, the expenditure review process, um, and looking at what we could do to improve our economy as the Finance Minister. And so I think and what she has described, and she's often cited Susan Ryan as the first Minister for Women who was, who was doing this and making sure this was seen as an economic matter. She keeps bringing it back to economics. And that's when, when she formed our task force and called it 
the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, not a gender equality task force, not a, a women's opportunity, but the economic the economic task force. It gave us a pathway to look at this through the lens of what would be best for the Australian economy. And that when we when we, we had commissions and work before the task force was um, was brought together from Deloitte and Australians investing in women to look at what would be the benefit to the Australian economy of the full utilization of women in our economy. And it's 128 billion dollars. So that's what we forego in revenue, in tax receipts, in productivity by accepting that we don't need to invest in women and we'll just let the current um, situation continue as it is. If we start with that idea, that helps to have a conversation, I think, more generally with the public um, and with those that are sceptical to say we can now actually show what that benefit looks like into the Australian economy. And that met very closely with every woman we met in our in our discussions and consultations where as opposed to the trope about women either wanting being regarded as wanting to be on welfare and have children to get welfare or being a drag on the economy, all the women we met said, I just want to be an active taxpayer. I want to be in the position where I earn enough money to pay tax because I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that um, generating of value for the, the economy. But to be a taxpayer, I need investment to get my skills up. I need my, my child care dealt with in a way that my husband and I, my partner and I can manage so that's not a drag. Um, We need to think about how I get paid properly for the work I do. All those things were about wanting to be an active contributor to our economy. And we wrote the entire report as an economic 10-year roadmap for that reason, to try to get people away from thinking it was a women's rights paper or that it was somehow about a big social investment. And I've got to say, even having done that, you know, I, I'm, I'm still staggered that it didn't interest more economists or the financial review or papers that could have looked at this to say, hey, hang on, is this another part of the way we talk about productivity? Can we look at this as a productivity lift? And so I just keep, as you do, as I hope many people in your electorate and others think about things, I keep coming back to the basics of why, why would we continue to waste this incredible resource when we're searching for productivity gains and when we know the economy needs every part working, um, and we were able to show that the investment, not just in women but in the systems um, that support women having an equal opportunity to work, pay back remarkably quickly and over and, and continue to pay back over the life course of the women that are the beneficiaries of the kind of policies we've suggested. Yes. From the perspective of someone like me, it's quite the no-brainer, but um, and it is quite frustrating given those productivity issues that we have with such an obvious at least partial solution, but a massive piece of the solution, if only we could enable women. Let's go to some of the levers. And the report, it's a, it's a really good report, and I've had the chance to have a more granular look at it, actually, over the summer, just in terms of my own policy intentions over the next 12 months. But it, it's kind of broken into, well, what, what, should, what should we do right now? What should we do in the medium term? What, and what, what should we do in the long term? Could you pull out? some of those levers that you think that we could pull uh, that would begin to make a real difference? Yeah, um, and some of them, I've got to be honest, the government has started to address. And in our interim report before this report, we made certain recommendations about restoring the single parent payment to single parents whose children were over eight. So we started to do some repair work on things that were just unjust and were driving women into poverty with their children. So that that was they were significant reforms that the government started. The line. I think there's more to do there, but they were significant wins. And we also looked at some issues around the paid parental leave scheme and extending it and 
um, and that that has been something that the government has committed to. But if I think if I give a sense of the five big structural areas where we said if you if you could do something significant in these five areas, you'd have a great outcome. We tried to describe it as where would we get to if in each of those five areas we did the right work. So care, the care economy, the care the care for others was a big part of what we've discussed. And we said that if we could get a transformed economy and a contemporary economy where women were full participants and respected for the, the value of their work, the unpaid care and domestic work in homes and families would be shared, valued and understood to be a core, core element of our economy. So we're sort of positing if we could do what we say, this is where you end up, and that the care economy sectors would provide quality services for those engaging and would offer fair paying conditions for their workers. So we'd have a functioning care society, aged care, disability care, early education care, not just for the recipients, but for the workers, they would have a good career too. So we said that's the kind of country you'd want to live in. With work, we said that women would be thriving in safe, respectful, secure, professionally paid work with access to high quality flexibility in any sector or location. And there'd be better alignment in the gender distribution of paid and unpaid work and have more options for women to participate and provide higher incomes and better retirement savings for women. So that gets to the nature of work, training and skills, superannuation. On education and skills, we talked a lot about uh, women would have had opportunities to develop skills across a lifetime through accessible, flexible and affordable education and training programs, which they don't have at the moment. The collapse of the TAFE system, women re-entering work without the kind of skills does mean there's a block on their ability to keep working into their 40s and 50s and beyond. So we'd say fixing that it has a huge impact. Then something really interesting that we actually, in this area of tax and transfers, we thought most of this would have to happen actually in the long term. But what we've seen, I think, in the last week or so over the redesign potential of the stage three tax cuts is we've seen something that we recommended. I'm not sure that's what drove it, but we saw this very starkly. And we said that um, you need to amend the tax and transfer system to encourage and incentivise equal economic participation and economic security across a woman's lifetime because we discovered that at every point in a woman's lifetime she was getting a much higher marginal rate of tax every time she tried to re-enter the workforce and um, either uh, pay more money to a superannuation, she was taxed. And so we, we made an explicit recommendation that the tax and transfer system should be the subject of a gender impact assessment and disaggregate the data on that system and lo and behold, I think when you look at the Treasury documents, which I've had a good look at over the weekend, Treasury's done a gender impact assessment of those stage three tax cuts as they were originally and discovered that women were the big losers and that wealthy men, older men, were the big winners in those stage three cuts. And women were, were catastrophically left behind in, those, in, in, that, in that design. The redesign, the redistribution of it, actually says that 100% of all women um, working will get a tax cut and 90% will get more than they would have originally got under the under the scheme design originally. So just applying a gender lens or a, a way of disaggregating that data between men and women in the workforce in the tax system has led us, to, I think, you know, depending on what the parliament does, um, to something that actually benefits women and women in these highly um, gendered professions that are in the low to middle income brackets. And then we talked about government and said we really needed government to operate in the interest of gender equal outcomes. And this gets to policy and, again, the gender impact assessment. So budgeting and policymaking should be looked at through the lens of how does this policy affect men and women? Does it affect them differently? 
Um, does it affect young women differently to young men? Do we have built-in bias? And if you could be a steward of that kind of assessment of policy and of budgets, budgeting, you actually a government could teach agencies and the rest of the the economy how to do that so that we don't get these perverse outcomes that stop women having an equal opportunity when it comes to policy and, and budgeting. So they, they were the big five elements. And then we had seven recommendations within them. And I'm, I'm happy, I don't want to bore your listeners, but the, the, there was there were then seven rec- recommendations and we did split them up between do this now and then commit to doing this over the next five to ten years. And, and we were very clear that you can't fix this in one budget or in one parliament, that this needs a commitment that says let's not slip back, let's have a really big ambition over the next ten years and we would see a thriving, much more dynamic economy as a result of the, the recommendations we've made. I'm interested, just as we close, in some of the sort of oversights or reporting, because there's various recommendations within the report about, as you say, gender impact assessments on all legislation, enabling a national uh, economic equality advisory board, improved data gathering, work around government procurement and how that relates to women uh, companies. And that's something that I've done some work with the government on in relation to the National Reconstruction Fund, where we were able to insert a gender lens into that legislation in order that the fund has to consider leadership and, and gender balance and, and such when it's um, allowing government funds to go to those sorts of organisations. But how do you think the reporting piece as a sort of accountability measure, if you like, and, and a sort of a way of seeing what's actually happening can make a difference. I think accountability and reporting is at, the, is at the core of any sustainable change. I think that we've made some big policy prescriptions that are about universal high-quality education and care and lifting the the, 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 the um, wages and conditions of work. So there's lots of that. But when you speak specifically about reporting and publication they, these have huge opportunities to change a system. So the Workplace Gender Equality Agency's changes that take place, I think this week, 1st of February, I think they take place, where all Australian companies with more than 100 employees must now report publicly about their gender pay gaps. That's the first time that that data will be open and available for everyone, everyone to see around those employers. And while some employers might not like it, it's the first time that workers and the community can say, hang on, I'd buy from that place or I was thinking of working there and look at this gap they've acknowledged. And I think more and more employees are going to say, actually, we've got to close that gap faster because we are no longer an employer of choice or people can see that we haven't done enough for, for women in our organisation. So that reporting alone is going to have a big impact, I think. It's mandatory, it's presented to the parliament and it's, it's, it's um, searchable by the public. So I think that's very important. But we did say that we thought that annually the Prime Minister and the Minister for Women and Finance should enter the parliament with a scorecard on the progress of women and choose the 10 most important features of what would economic equality look like. What are we earning? What kind of leadership positions are we taking? Um, are gender gap pay gaps closing? Are we gaining anything in superannuation savings that mean we're not going to be retiring into poverty? Uh, are, we, is, are we experiencing less domestic and family and sexual violence in our communities and our workplaces? So choose the 10 big things that would be symbolic of a nation that's making progress and tell the parliament every year against those 10 where we're heading. And I think that begins to tell a story that's both economic and social and sets an aspiration to be a country where we want women to be equal participants in our society and not be subjected to violence and not be underpaid and 
all the things we've, we've just discussed. And to me, that's a really reasonable way of setting a, a kind of setting up the store of what's possible over 10 years. And then, as you said, if government is then applying a better lens, a better way of checking, you know, is this policy something we haven't, you know, a lot of health policy, medical policy, medical research, until Katie Gallagher ensured that the um, health, the research, medical research budget had to be split between um, men and women researchers and 50-50, until it happened, most of the research was going into men researchers looking after problems that they treated as if they applied to men and women equally. So as a result, we've had less health diagnosis of how women are affected by heart health. We sort of assume that women's big issue is breast cancer or other forms of cancer. Women actually die in much greater numbers because of heart issues, but we've never really disaggregated the heart heart medical research area into how are women affected by heart disease. And so th- this thing plays out all over the, our, our society. And once you start looking for it and apply a lens that says, so what would we go looking for for the treatment of that of that health issue? Or how would we get more women into jobs that pay more? Or why don't men want to do caring jobs? And once you start having that, that conversation and stop thinking about the gendered norms that we've lived with to date, all of a sudden I think you open up this incredible opportunity for a society that values all of its people and where we don't have these persistent discriminatory barriers set up against our young women and, and girls. And I've got to say, Zoya, because I, I am worried about backlash and about men hearing this kind of conversation thinking, well, hang on, what about men? And you know, men have significant mental health issues. We know that suicide rates in men is much higher than women. There are all sorts of things going on with men in our economy and our society too. So this is a conversation we've got to have together about it not being a zero-sum game. This is just about lifting women at the expense of men or boys, but finding a new way of discussing how we are equal. What does equality for men and women, girls and boys, um, however you identify, how does that, how do you how do you enter the world as equal as anyone else? And what are the barriers to stop you? And we know that in Australia, some of the most tightly wound gender norms are actually stopping men from doing more caring or from taking more time off to do things that matter to them because it's not seen as manly or it's seen as somehow breaking the mould of what is a good man like. So I think that the healthy masculinity debates, the coming together for this discussion, not fighting about who's better, but fixing discrimination, bringing a, a society and a community along and working out what would be best for all of us. And the, the rise of, of women's equality does enormous benefit to men's equality and makes us a much better society. And Australia, I think, needs this urgently because of these persistent norms that, that I think play out in all sorts of difficult ways. And there's so much to gain for all of us. Yes, indeed. All boats rise together. And I'm very pleased to say that I called for the publication of the Gender Wage Gap at the Jobs and Skills Summit in 2022. And it is very exciting to see that now legislated and good to have been able to work with the government uh, and to have been on the same page as the Minister for Women on that, and as we are actually on uh, several of these issues. So um, thanks for taking me through all of that and our audience, and we really hope to make some progress, uh, more progress on some of these issues over the next 12 months or so. Thanks for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria.